Early in his mortal ministry, the Savior and his disciples passed through Samaria while traveling from Judea to Galilee. Weary, hungry, and thirsty from their journey, they stopped at Jacob's well in the city of Sychar. While the disciples went in search of food, the Savior remained at the well. He requested a drink from a Samaritan woman who had come to draw water. Because the Jews and Samaritans were divided by rancor and did not often speak to one another, the woman responded to the Savior's request with a question. How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? In the New Testament, the Savior used this simple encounter at the well to teach powerful, eternal truths. Though weary and thirsty, the Master Teacher took this opportunity to testify of his divine role as the Redeemer of the world and to proclaim authoritatively his true identity as the long-promised Messiah. Yet thoughtfully answered the woman, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Intrigued but skeptical, and seeing that Jesus had no container with which to draw water, the woman queried further, From whence then hast thou that living water? In a powerful promise, Jesus then declared himself to be the source of living water, the wellspring of life everlasting. He said, Whoso drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Missing entirely the spiritual meaning in the Lord's message, the woman, thinking only of satisfying her physical thirst and of her convenience, demanded, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. In commenting on the conversation between the Savior and the woman, Elder Robert L. Simpson taught, Throughout history, men have always been looking for the easy way. Some have devoted their lives to finding the fountain of youth, a miracle water, which would bring everlasting life. Today, many are still seeking some magic fountain that will bring forth success, fulfillment, and happiness. But most of their searching is in vain. It is only this living water the gospel of Jesus Christ that can and will bring a happy, successful, and an everlasting life to the children of men. End of quote. The Savior's promise to that woman extends to all of our Heavenly Father's children. By living the gospel of Jesus Christ, we develop within ourselves a living spring that will quench eternally our thirst for happiness, peace, and everlasting life. The Lord explains clearly in the Doctrine and Covenants that only faithful obedience can tap the well of living water that refreshes and enlivens our souls. But unto him that keepeth my commandments I will give the mysteries of my kingdom, and the same shall be in him a well of living water springing up unto everlasting life. When the woman said she knew the Messiah would come, Jesus said, I that speak unto thee am he. He demonstrated his power of prophetic discernment by telling the woman personal details about her life that only one with divine insight could have known. Astonished, the Samaritan woman left her water pot and hurried off to tell others of her interview with the Lord, saying, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is this not the Christ? While she gathered those of her city who would listen Jesus taught his now-returned disciples that he already had meat to eat that ye know not of. To his, buzz- to his puzzled disciples who were carrying the food they had acquired, he explained, My beat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. When the crowd of curious Samaritans arrived to see and hear the man who had proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. The scriptures tell us that many believe the scriptures, the Savior's teachings, and as they listened, their initial curiosity matured into testimony. They declared, 
we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. These latter days are a time of great spiritual thirst. Many in the world are searching often intensely for a source of refreshment that will quench their yearning for meaning and direction in their lives. They crave a cool, satisfying drink of insight and knowledge that will soothe their parched souls. Their spirits cry out for life-sustaining experiences of peace and calm to nourish and enliven their withering hearts. Indeed, there are many yet upon the earth that all, uh, earth, among all sects, parties, and denominations who are blinded by the subtle craftiness of men, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, and who are only kept from the truth because they know not where to find it. Let us work with all our heart, might, mind, and strength to show our thirsty brothers and sisters where they may find the living water of the gospel, that they may come to drink of the water that springs up into everlasting life. The Lord provides the living water that can quench the burning thirst of those whose lives are parched by a drought of truth. He expects us to supply to them the fullness of the gospel by giving them the scriptures and the words of the prophets and to bear personal testimony as to the truth of the restored gospel, to alleviate their thirst. When they drink from the cup of the gospel of knowledge, their thirst is satisfied as they come to understand our Heavenly Father's great plan of happiness. As at Jacob's well, so today the Lord Jesus Christ is the only source of living water. It will quench the thirst of those suffering from the drought of divine truth that so afflicts the world. The words of the Lord to ancient Israel, spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, describe the condition of many of God's children in our own day. My people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out of broken cisterns that can hold no water. Too many of our Heavenly Father's children spend their precious lives carving out broken cisterns of worldly gain that cannot hold the living water that satisfies fully their natural thirst for everlasting truth. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Savior, now returned to Jerusalem, extended this timeless universal invitation. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Elder Bruce R. McConkie defined living water as the words of eternal life, the message of salvation, the truths about God and his kingdom. It is the doctrines of the gospel. He went on to explain, where there are prophets of God, there will be found rivers of living water, wells filled with eternal truths, springs bubbling forth their life-giving draughts that save from spiritual death. End of quote. The Lord has declared that whether by my own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. We are blessed to live in a day when prophets and apostles live upon the earth. Through them we are refreshed continually by an abundant stream of eternal truth that, if obeyed, brings the living water of the Lord into our lives. Echoing those Samaritans who listened to the Savior at Jacob's well, we too can say with faith and with firm conviction we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. We miss hearing the voice of President Howard W. Hunter Surely it was the love, hope, and compassion of Jesus Christ that we heard in President Hunter's simple eloquence. He raised us to new heights of understanding and urged us to renew our commitment to keep sacred covenants. He reminded us that Christ's supreme sacrifice can find full fruition in our lives only as we accept the invitation to follow him. When President Hunter asked us to treat each other with more kindness, more courtesy, more humility, patience, and forgiveness. His personal example of these Christ-like virtues taught us with a persuasive power that even transcended his unforgettable spoken words. He encouraged us to drink more often and more deeply of the living water to bring spiritual enrichment into our lives. President Hunter said, It would be the deepest desire of my heart to have every member of the Church to be temple-worthy. I would hope that every adult member would be worthy of and carry a current temple recommend, even if proximity to a temple does not allow immediate or frequent use of it. 
He wanted every one of us to be strengthened by the sanctity and safety which is provided within the hallowed and consecrated walls of the house of the Lord. What better way to become more closely acquainted with the Savior and to strengthen our commitment to be more like him than to visit frequently his holy house and drink deeply of the living waters that are there? President Hunter wanted us to qualify ourselves through righteous living for the blessings of beauty, revelation, and peace that can be enjoyed in our temples. Hence his often repeated invitation to establish the temple as the great symbol of our membership in the Lord's Church. Today we have sustained President Hunter's successor. I rejoice with you in the opportunity we have had in this solemn assembly to sustain President Gordon B. Hinckley as prophet, seer, and revelator, and as spokesman for our Lord Jesus Christ here upon the earth. He is the Lord's anointed. He holds all priesthood keys and is authorized to exercise them in leading and directing the kingdom of God. President Hinckley is a faithful servant of the Lord, whose heart and voice we know well. We've come to love him through his 37-year ministry as a general authority of the Church. Nearly 34 years ago, he was ordained an apostle, a special witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the longest-serving general authority now living. When President Hinckley was called to the Twelve, the Church had 1,900,000 members and 336 stakes compared with 9 million members and more than 2,000 stakes today. Born of a noble father and a saintly mother, President Hinckley learned as a young boy the truths of the restored gospel from his faithful parents. He came to respect deeply and value highly his pioneer heritage. He served valiantly as a young missionary in England. Throughout his adult life, he has worked tirelessly to build the kingdom. He has served under eight presidents of the Church, including 14 years as a counselor to the last three—President Spencer W. Kimball, Ezra Taft Benson, and Howard W. Hunter. President Hinckley's preparation for his current service has been lifelong. As President Boyd K. Packer reminded us recently, no man comes to be president of this Church except he has been apprenticed for a lifetime. From the scriptures we learn that those who serve as prophets were prepared from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God. I bear my witness that President Hinckley has been foreordained, raised up, prepared, and called of God to declare his word among his people that they might have everlasting life. I have been well acquainted with him since my early youth and have observed firsthand that the fabric of his noble character contains not a single shoddy thread. From the living water of the Lord and his restored gospel, President Hinckley has drunk deeply throughout his entire lifetime. Because of his righteous obedience, streams of living water have flowed and will continue to flow from him to quench the thirst of a spiritually parched world. I am grateful today to sustain President Thomas S. Monson and President James E. Faust as counselors in the First Presidency. They, too, have been tried and tested in the service of God and all humankind over many years. They are valiant and faithful. These three presiding high priests of the First Presidency merit our loyalty and devotion. We can sustain and follow them with absolute trust and confidence. As one who also stands as a special witness, I join my testimony my testimony with those believing Samaritans of long ago, brothers and sisters, to you and to all the world, I testify in all soberness that this same Jesus of Nazareth, who spoke with the woman at Jacob's well, is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. He lives today. He is our Redeemer and our Advocate with the Father. He stands at the head of this Church that bears his name. The First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles stand as his duly authorized and ordained servants, charged with their sacred responsibility to guide his Church in these latter days. Our responsibility is to do the will of him that sent us and bring that living water to all who thirst for it. I so testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Due to the nature of Kalina's general authority, we are assigned to visit various nation, places, or groups. In some of these, there are risks and dangers. The varying circumstances under which this area functions frequently prevent us from reaching the places we have been assigned to visit. On one occasion, I received the assignment to visit the state located in the beautiful mountains of the Peruvian Highlands. This unit of the church has not been visited by the general authority for more than two years because of the dangers involved in traveling there. After obtaining proper authorization and with the help of the mission president, we commenced the five-hour trip that took to us the beautiful Montaro River Valley. When we arrived at the state center, the president and his counselor were waiting for us. Upon seeing us, their face lit up with happiness, and we joined in a strong brotherly embrace. Some three years previously, two of our beloved missionaries had been killed in this city. After embracing the president close to my heart, trying to communicate to him all my love, I asked, have you suffered greatly during this time in which we haven't been able to come? He answered with his eyes filled with tears, Yes, we have suffered greatly, but we have kept the faith. This simple phrase touched our heart, and we could feel that the hands of the Lord has been with them in the difficult circumstances. They had experience as a people and as a member of the church. During our meeting with them, we learned many things, one of which was how to keep the faith in areas such as these, far from large cities and far from the east quarter of the church. In the thing that we learned, we were able to distinguish at least five principles which aid them to overcome their difficulties. First, they never stopped trusting in the Lord and they placed all of their faith in Him. This was the foundation for their assurance. They trust in the fact that He would protect and guide them. The Lord has said, if ye will have faith in me, ye shall have power to do whatsoever thing is expedient in me. Occasionally, in the midst of our desperation, we think other ways, other guys. But those who counsel us are not always prepared to help because they do not understand our spiritual need. They are not prepared to give us the counsel and the revelation that we need in trying circumstances. We have the great example in the sons of Mosiah traveling towards the lands of Sarahemla in the face of so much adversity and so many trials. Because of the trust they had in the Lord, the Lord did visit them with his spirit and say unto them, Be comforted, and they were comforted. Yet ye shall be patient in long-suffering and affliction, that ye may show for good example unto them in me, and I will make an instrument in thee in my hands unto the salvation of many souls. Second, they remained faithful in prayer. Each member, whether adult, child, or adolescent, faithfully followed this holy practice each day, praying individually and as family with all his dear faith. As we know, prayer is the means by which we communicate with our Heavenly Father, he listens to us because we are his children and he loves us and he is anxious to bless us when we keep the commandments. As the Savior in chapter 25, he taught them, Pray in your families and to the fathers always in my name that your wives and your children may be blessed. No one could have given them greater assurance that they would be heard by the father than his own son. Third, they never stopped studying the scriptures. In the scripture, they found faith to overcome fears, solution to their problems, divine comfort from the master, the loving counsel of the father, and especially the assurance of being guided in righteousness toward eternal life. Search the scripture, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. They live these commandments even in the midst of all their difficulties. One of the saints there said, We have never been as close to the Lord as when we were reading the scriptures. 
Fourth, they implemented priesthood programs. Due to the fatal incident that has taken place there, it was necessary to remote full-time missionaries. In order to make up for the help that was lost, it became necessary to organize the return missionary so that they could teach the gospel to those who wanted to hear it. Reference came in from member families. Home teaching increased. Nobody was overlooked. Just as they said, they had kept the faith. Fifth, they humbled themselves before the Lord. They purified their lives. They repented. They tried to be, live together as a saints, sharing much of what they had, fasting when the problems arose or when they were threatened. This simple yet powerful principle enabled them to sustain themselves, to be preserved, to remain faithful and active as a member of the church in that area. What wonderful teaching we are able to find in these distant and isolated villages where frequently it is difficult to sustain a religion or to lead the principles of the gospel. We would imagine that it is also difficult to sustain life there and to keep the faith. Only their confidence in God and their faith in Jesus Christ sustain them, move them, and purify them. Keeping the faith must also be challenged for those who are alone in the church, for those whose families are not converted, for those who have lost a companion, a spouse, or a child. Great courage is needed in order to continue onward, but we always had comfort from high. Our pioneer did not complain. They did not deny the faith, nor turn back. It is difficult to conceive of the great loneliness of the people of the church during those first years when they were a small group, the only church member on all the face of the earth. They were persecuted, humiliated, rejected, and some were killed. The faith which they developed in the, the Lord in the face of so much adversity made them strong and humble at the same time. At that time, it must have been very difficult to keep the faith when there was so much opposition, so much loneliness, so much anguish. It was a glorious time, a time of murders, a time in which to lay the foundation of the courage and empire religion such as ours. President Kimball said regarding this theme, suffering can make sense of people as they learn patience, long-suffering, and self-mastery. The suffering of our Savior were part of his education. How grateful, grateful we are for those who, with their simple example, allow us to follow without fainting, seeking the return to our Father. Perhaps isolation makes us small and distant towns, and villages stronger and more pure. At the close of the conference in that stake, I assure the members of God, love them, and the First Presidency and the Twelve Apostles were mindful of them, and that this was the reason we were there, to give them our testimony of the fact that we were part of the Church, that we had not forgotten them, and that we prayed for them. There was gratitude in their hearts, and again they smiled as a humble member who has been comforted by the Spirit of the Lord. As he gave the closing prayer in one of the conference sessions, a worthy elderly man, nearly 80 years of age, expressed well the ways in which they remembered the prophets. In his prayers, he said, Heavenly Father, we be the thanks for having sent one of thy servants here to the Mantaro Valley, where thy beloved servant, President Kimball, knelt down and blessed this land that it would feed us and always provide as a livelihood. How fortunate and privileged we are to be today in the presence of the prophets of God and to receive their loving influence. Due to the worldwide growth of the church, a large number of our good members have never had the privilege to be near of one of these wonderful leaders at any time during their life. I testify to you that they love the general authority and that they are following his teaching and that they await humbly and patiently the day in which they can be at the feet of the prophets. The condition of people of the nation changed due to the progress in the world. Nevertheless, in many such places, be it in the frosty mountain heights, in the warm valleys, at the river's edge, 
or in the desert places, whatever member or arches are found, they will always be those who practice this basic principle, and by so doing, they bless the rest of the people. Let us face our earthly challenge courageously, in spite of where we live, or through whatever difficult circumstances we may be called to endure. Let us keep the faith. We are fortunate this day to be able to sustain a new prophet and his counselor, whom we love and support. In the coming days, in the nearly all nation of the earth, even in the most remote towns and villages, our members will have also have the privilege of raising their hands joyfully to sustain them, as we have done today. Someday, our journey here on the earth will be end, and we will return to the presence of our Heavenly Father. I pray that on that day, we may have the same courage and give the same testimony given by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. May the Lord bless us to be continued valiant, humble, and faithful. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. For the mountain shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord. Such scriptural language overwhelms my reasoning and floods me again with the reality of God's love and of our importance to Him. Did He speak to our intelligences in that way in the long-ago council when we understood enough to choose to follow Christ? It was surely then, before our mortal experience, that we began with our part of building the covenant relationship with the Savior, which is vital to our eternal lives. I believe we chose to be guided then, as we need to be guided now, by His loving care for our divine and unique identities. Our decision then was of the greatest import. Now, when we face crossroads and dilemma, we can look again to that same source for courage to move forward on our journey. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Of the many blessings that have come to me through my knowledge of Christ's gospel, I am most grateful for the doctrine that teaches us that our lives here have eternal meaning and are for the glory of God. We are central in His great work. He teaches that as we receive His light, we can reflect that light in the world. There is a constant struggle to balance our knowledge of light against the error and fear that are among the hallmarks of our world. Today we see temptations of old in new ways. They can be magnified and multicolored by technology, which gives them avenues everywhere. These portrayals are aimed at the young, the naive, and the vulnerable. Indeed, they are aimed at each one of us. All manner of violence is depicted in arcade games and we even see horrifying, violent acts in our own neighborhoods. Amidst the danger, our love waxes cold, and we may seek a defense in the very weapons that threaten us. Worse yet, we may be turned by fear to looking for, for protection from one another rather than keeping our promise to be a light and a protection for one another. The Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 16 brings clarity to distinctions Christ's disciples need to understand. Break not my commandments for to save your lives, for whosoever will save his life in this world shall lose it in the world to come, and whosoever will lose his life in this world for my sake shall find it in the world to come. Therefore. 
Forsake the world and save your souls. We must depend upon the light of Christ to understand this teaching, but we cannot allow our fears to separate us from the possession of our souls. Hear what is recorded in the 101st section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Wherefore, fear not, even unto death, for in this world your joy is not full, but in me your joy is full. Therefore, care not for the body, neither the life of the body, but care for the soul and for the life of the soul. And seek the face of the Lord always, that in patience ye may possess your souls, and ye shall have eternal life. It is a response of the soul when we sense and accept the loving promises that Christ extends to us. Listen to Isaiah's description of what our Lord has already done for us. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. Then Isaiah records the Lord's soul-nourishing tenderness and the loving-kindness of his assurances. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth I will tell you of them. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth. The Book of Alma teaches that the song he has asked us to sing is a song of redeeming love. Later, when the Savior was asked in Palestine to designate the first and great commandment, he unhesitatingly said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And the second commandment is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. These statements are both clear and comprehensive. They suggest the beginning of how we can engage ourselves in His covenant. And surely, since He knows us, He would not have required anything we cannot do. The love Christ commands requires a mighty change and great humility. It requires us to forsake pride and to be stripped of envy. It requires that we neither mock our sisters and brothers or persecute anyone. Christ knew that for us to find any of those characteristics in ourselves would be onerous and would demand our great effort just to look. He said, If thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. He was not suggesting our mutilation, but rather showing his awareness of how painful clearing ourselves of such offenses could be. When we have made the changes that only we can make, then by the atoning blood of Christ we may receive the forgiveness that only he can bring. The reciprocal nature of those actions suggests the high trust and respect the Lord has for our abilities. Anyone who has had experience with the Lord's love knows of the sure courage that comes when we keep our part of that trust and honor Him by seeking His Spirit and by living the best we can. We hear again, My kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed. And, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. Such scriptural language rivets my attention. In the midst of a troubling world, the foundations I rely on come by my covenants with the Lord. They are indeed like sapphires and are treasures beyond price. Through them I have an eternal link to my loved ones and to God. They are the restored principles and ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
which are available to righteous women and men alike through the power of the Holy Priesthood of God. They include baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, the sacrament, and temple covenants. These are the ways given us and freely chosen by us to vouchsafe our eternal lives. And now, because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. For ye say your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore, ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. We are then, because of his great love and because of our desire to be guided by his light, part of the family of Christ. Because of our covenants, we have protection from loneliness and alienation. Because of our relationship with him, we can reflect light and tenderness to one another and we can possess our own souls eternally. I testify of the great blessing it is to know these things. I am humbly grateful for scriptural testaments and for my knowledge that Christ is alive and heads his Church. I know he can be alive in each of us as we keep his commandments. And I say this humbly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Many years ago, I went on assignment to Brazil. As part of the trip, I was to travel by car from Sao Paulo to a conference in a city about two hours distant. A member of the Quorum of the Twelve was going to preside at that conference. I hoped to ride in the car with him so that I might learn. But he suggested that I make the trip in another car with missionaries. He said, teach them while you travel. So when I climbed into the front seat of the car, I learned that two young lady missionaries' companions were going to that city for a transfer. After we had become acquainted, I leaned back over the seat and asked, What would you like to know about? Both of them eagerly and almost in chorus said, Tell us how we can become more humble. You might have struggled with that as I did. I only remember the green hills of Brazil going by as I tried and the feeling at the end that I had failed. If only I could have that chance again on this beautiful day. I have learned some things about their question since President Hinckley invited me to meet with him yesterday afternoon and issued the call to this sacred office. I think I could help them. A little more now. First, I would have realized that they had already had the first lesson in their hearts. The fact that they even asked meant that they had gone beyond being overwhelmed by their doubts about themselves to hope that if they would just submit, if they could just learn what to do, they could be better. If I had the chance again, I would have told them that. And then I would have given them just one bit of counsel counsel about what to do, I would have said just this, always remember him. I would have tried to help them to do that by taking them in their minds to a garden where they would hear the Savior of the word, world's words, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then I would have taken them forward in time to that glorious day reported in the Book of Mormon when the resurrected Lord appeared to the people in the Americas and said, Behold, I am the light and the life of the world, and I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. I know from the softness I heard in their voices 
and saw in their eyes that those missionaries would have then and perhaps always remembered him. And from his perfect example, they would have felt their hearts breaking and received the answer to their pleading, tell us how we can become more humble. When we drove away from them in in that city of our destination, they were standing waiting for a bus. I looked back. There they stood alone. I wish I had known what I learned last night so I could read to them while they were still in the car these words from the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the 23rd verse, that the fullness of my gospel might be proclaimed by the weak and the simple under the ends of the world and before kings and rulers, and then starting at the 26th verse, and inasmuch as they sought wisdom, they might be instructed, and inasmuch as they sinned, they might be chastened, they might repent, and inasmuch as they were humble, they might be made strong and blessed from on high and receive knowledge from time to time. They would have known the Savior spoke of them, and then in their humility they would have found that they were given power to proclaim his name. Over the last hours, I have come to understand other blessings from always remembering him. I have thought of a family in Albuquerque I met years ago, a father, mother, and two teenage daughters who belonged to no church but read the Bible together every day. They pondered the Savior's life and his words. When we found them, they had decided that Christ would have a church and that they should find it. They knew it would have prophets and apostles at its foundation because that is what Christ had left in his church in the meridian of time. They knew that the resurrected Lord had appeared to his apostles. And so when we testified that God the Father and his Son, the Savior of the world, came to a boy prophet, Joseph Smith, that seemed right to them. When they heard us testify that Peter, James, and John appeared and restored priesthood, they knew that would have had to have happened. And the Holy Spirit, which they also recognized, told them it was true. I realized sometime last night or early this morning that they recognized the truth, that this is the Church of Jesus Christ in large part because they had always remembered him. Every day they had gathered to read about him in his words, and so they remembered him. And after they were baptized, they were ready to follow the living prophet because they knew the Savior always speaks to his prophets to bless his people. I will keep my covenant to take his name upon me and always remember him, and I will go wherever I am sent to teach of him and offer the ordinances by which we take his name upon us and promise that we will always remember him and keep his commandments. And if they accept that invitation, they will know what I know. God our Father lives. His Son, Jesus the Christ, did the will of the Father and atoned for all of our sins. Because of him, we will be resurrected. Because of his atonement, we may be exalted. The Lord sent heavenly messengers to confer keys on his prophet, Joseph Smith. The Lord has called his prophet today, Gordon B. Hinckley. The Savior will speak to us and all the world through him. And if those who hear will take the Savior's name upon them and always remember him and keep his commandments, they will finally come to him, and he will take them home to his Father and our Father, where we may live forever in families. I testify that is true in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My brothers and sisters, I would like to represent all of us in expressing appreciation to the wives, the children, and the grandchildren of the First Presidency for all they do in supporting our beloved brethren. Life's most challenging questions seem to be those that begin with the word, Why? Why is life so hard? Why is there so much sorrow, hate, and unhappiness in the world? Why does death take the young, and why must the innocent suffer? We all have wrestled with such questions from time to time 
as we struggle with the vicissitudes of mortality. I particularly want to talk to the younger members of God's family about why I believe the only satisfying answers to such questions come from the comforting perspective of faith in our Heavenly Father and His eternal plan for our happiness. The Prophet Alma called the plan the great plan of happiness. It is known more commonly as the plan of salvation. It is beautiful in its simplicity to all who seek prayerfully to know and understand the true meaning and purpose of life. Through prophets past and present, God has revealed the doctrines of His great plan of happiness. It consists of infinite, eternal, absolute, unchanging principles. From Alma we learn that God gave unto them commandments after having made known the plan of redemption. The plan teaches that all who have or will live on earth are the spirit children of heavenly parents. We lived with them before coming to this earth to receive our bodies of flesh and bone. If Adam and Eve had not transgressed, they would not have fallen, but they would have remained in the Garden of Eden, and they would have had no children, wherefore they would have remained in the state of innocence, having no joy. Adam fell, that men might be, and men are, that they might have joy. After the fall, God instructed Adam to cleave unto his wife Eve. God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, a commandment that has never been rescinded. Our Father's plan provides for redemption from the fall through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. As the only begotten Son of God and the only sinless per person to live on this earth, He made a perfect atonement for all mankind. It applies to everyone unconditionally as it pertains to the resurrection from temporal or physical death. For all shall rise from the dead with immortal bodies as a result of the Atonement. However, the Atonement is conditional as it pertains to each person's individual sins. It touches everyone to the degree that he or she has faith in Jesus Christ, repents and obeys the gospel. Exaltation in eternal life with God is reserved for those who keep the commandments. Mortality, then, is a time to test our ability to understand our Heavenly Father's plan and, of course, our willingness to be obedient. Obedience is essential to obtain exaltation and eternal life. King Benjamin explained, The Lord God hath sent His holy prophets among all the children of men to declare these things to every kindred, nation, and tongue, that thereby whosoever should believe in Christ, the same might receive remission of their sins and rejoice with exceedingly great joy. He also taught his people, Consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. What a wonderful, warm, and reassuring thing it is to know that the primary objective of the very God of heaven is the immortality and eternal life of man, or in other words, our eternal happiness and joy. Sometimes I wonder if we really appreciate what that means and how it should affect our lives. We must give adequate attention to the doctrines of happiness real happiness, infinite and eternal. They should be the objective of everything we teach in the Church and of everything we do. The Prophet Joseph Smith said, We cannot keep all the commandments without first knowing them, and we cannot expect to know all or more than we now know unless we comply with or keep those we have already received. 
We must understand the basic doctrines and receive the saving ordinances that are essential for our eternal exaltation and happiness. Our present mortal state places a veil of forgetfulness over our minds, allowing us to prove ourselves able to do all things whatsoever the Lord our God shall command. But even though our present long-range view of eternity is limited, the Lord has not left us without direction. He has provided scriptures and apostles and prophets through whom He has revealed His plan for our exaltation and eternal life. And we have the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, to guide us. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught that, In obedience there is joy and peace unspotted, unalloyed. And as God has designed our happiness, He never has, He never will institute an ordinance or give a commandment to His people that is not calculated in its nature to promote that happiness which He has designed and which will not end in the greatest amount of good and glory to those who become the recipients of His law and ordinances." Critical to our knowledge of the plan of happiness is an understanding of the great governing principle of agency. A person does not have to spend much time in the schoolroom of mortality to realize that Heavenly Father's plan does not provide for blissful happiness at every step along our mortal journey. Life is filled with harsh realities that tug at the heart and tear away at the soul. One cannot look at suffering, regardless of its causes or origins, without feeling pain and compassion. I can understand why someone who lacks an eternal perspective might see the horrifying news footage of starving children and man's inhumanity to man and shake a fist at the heavens and cry, If there is a God, how could He allow such things to happen? The answer is not easy. But it isn't that complicated either. God has put His plan in motion. It proceeds through natural laws that are, in fact, God's laws. Since they are His, He is bound by them, as are we. I recognize for the purpose we mortals may not understand, the Lord can control the elements. For the most part, however, He does not cause, but He allows nature to run its course. In this imperfect world, bad things sometimes happen. The earth's rocky underpinnings occasionally shift and move, resulting in earthquakes. Certain weather patterns cause hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, and drought. Much adversity is man-made. Men's hearts turn cold, and the spirit of Satan controls their actions. In foreseeing the day of suffering in our time, the Savior said, The love of men shall wax cold, and iniquity shall abound. Violence, immorality, and other evils run rampant on the earth. Much adversity has its origin in the principle of agency. We tend to think of agency as a personal matter. If we ask someone to define moral agency, the answer will probably be something like this. Moral agency means I am free to make choices for myself. Often overlooked is the fact that choices have consequences. We forget also that agency offers the same privilege to others. At times we will be affected adversely by the way others choose to exercise their agency. Our Heavenly Father feels so strongly about protecting our agency that He allows His children to exercise it either for good or for evil. The plan of happiness is available to all of His children. If the world would embrace and live it, peace, joy, and plenty would abound on the earth. Much of the suffering we know today would be eliminated if people throughout the world would understand and live the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We mortals have a limited view of life from the eternal perspective. But if we know and understand Heavenly Father's plan, we realize that dealing with adversity is one of the chief ways we are tested. Our faith in our Heavenly Father and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, is the source of inner strength. Through faith we can find peace, comfort, and the courage to endure. As we trust in God and His plan for our happiness with all our hearts and lean not unto our own understanding, hope is born. Hope grows out of faith and gives meaning and purpose to all we do, can give us comfort in the face of adversity, strengthen the times of trial and peace when we have reason for doubt and anguish. By focusing on and living the principles of Heavenly Father's plan for our eternal happiness, we can separate ourselves from the wickedness of the world. If we are anchored to the correct understanding of who we are, why we are here on this earth, and where we can go after this mortal life, Satan cannot threaten our happiness through any form of temptation. If we are determined to live by Heavenly Father's plan, we will use our God-given moral agency to make decisions based on revealed truth, not on the opinions of others or on the current thinking of the world. For example, if we are moving into an era when the information superhighway will have the capacity to cut a wide path right into our homes. With fiber-optic computer technology, it can link homes to an incredible assort, assortment of messages and influences. This highway will be the conduit of information that will have the power to change our culture and thus our very lives. As we consider the importance of nourishing our intellects with the promising potential of superhighway resources, we must be ever cautious about the choices of programs and the impact of media in our lives. Those who understand our Heavenly Father's eternal plan for the joy and happiness of His children will be better prepared to make good choices as the information superhighway rolls across the world. The computer, television, satellite, microchip, and even the telephone all can bless and enhance our lives or can make them miserable. This is why making life's decisions based on our Heavenly Father's plan is so important. If we truly believe that we are His children and are here on earth to learn to live by faith, the teachings and the commandments of God and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, we will make the choices that will qualify us to one day return to live in their presence. Understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and following Him as our Savior and our Redeemer will influence every aspect of our lives, including all of our individual choices. Those who live according to Heavenly Father's eternal plan will not want to absorb any information that is illicit or untoward, nor will they destroy their spiritual sensitivity through immoral acts or the consumption of any harmful substances. Neither will they search for doctrinal loopholes to find reasons to challenge the ordained leadership of the Church, nor tamper with the simple truths of the gospel. They will not attempt to justify any lifestyle that is contrary to the plan of happiness. If they do any of these things, they will never find the inner peace and joy that living the gospel brings. All of our Father's children can seek prayerfully to know who they are and can find real happiness if they obey God's commandments and endure to the end. President Howard W. Hunter said, there is nothing sad or gloomy about a person who accepts the truths of the gospel and incorporates these principles in his daily living. God wants all of His children to be joyous and glad, and we can have this blessing if we are willing to keep His commandments and live by His word in all that we do. When the plan of our Heavenly Father is understood, the answers to life questions are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
May we learn to accept with faith the doctrines and teachings of the gospel and accept the plan of salvation with believing hearts and minds. Always know, brothers and sisters, that the leaders of the Church understand and accept the gospel plan and will defend it at all times and in all places. My testimony coincides with the testimony of the beloved Apostle John. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. May we search for the doctrines and commandments of the great plan of happiness, and when we learn them, may we embrace them willingly. By doing so, we will find lasting joy, happiness, and peace. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I leave you my testimony that the Lord's promise of peace comes from knowing and living the principles of our Heavenly Father's plan of happiness. May His peace and joy be with all of us, I humbly pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.